0: Well, good morning, Point Community Church. Um, let me just, again, as uh, Pastor Derek has already done it, let me welcome you to this uh, Still Scattered Worship Gathering. Uh, a couple of things, like as we, early on, um, even last year, 1st of January, as we thought through like uh, this next sermon series, we thought through the storyline of the Bible. A couple of things I could say um, about today um, one is I had no idea that I would, by this point, be a full-blown televangelist coming to you as you sit in your pajamas uh, with your kids all around you or whatever your situation may be. I had, I could not foresee that. I did not think I would be in a room preaching to the camera, but here we are. The second thing I would say is I had no idea um, I would be this excited about preaching from the book of Judges to you, but yet both of these things are true. And so uh, before we um, dive into Judges, let's just uh, take a moment and uh, let's just pray. Uh, Father in heaven, um, as, we, as we open up your word and your word is opened up to us, would you open up our hearts? Through the power of the spirit, Lord, we know that as believers, we're united as one in you even though we're we're meeting in, I don't know, a hundred plus different locations, we're united by you as we are one in Christ. We serve one Lord, been baptized into one baptism, into one confession. Jesus, that you are the savior of the world, the one who's come to redeem us, the true and perfect judge. And Jesus, we also know that even by by the power of the spirit, your spirit unites us as one. And so Lord, may we, um, may we realize that. May we realize that. And may you be near us as we look into your word. In your name we pray, amen. If you could, if you're joining with us on Facebook Live, if you could just drop in the comments, just a good morning to, uh, to one another as we, as we get started unpacking uh, the book of Judges. Even before we dive into Judges, let me just make a few remarks about the book of Joshua. And so the book of Joshua was the sixth book. Pastor Sean kind of wrapped it up for us last week and we start the book of Judges. But Joshua begins with the death of Moses and the raising up of a, of a new leader. And that new, new leader was Joshua. And, jo- and Judges opens up with the death of Joshua. That was in chapter one. And now we have new leaders who are going to be, who are going to be the judges. Last week in chapter 24 of the book of, uh, of Joshua that Pastor Sean preached about, that um, what Joshua does is he calls the children of Israel He kind of goes over the covenant with them again. Moses has already done that at the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua will do it again to them. And he will call the people to to faithfulness to the covenant. He will call them to fidelity, faithfulness, and and, um, and, and doing that and sincerity into keeping the covenant. And the people, the Israelites, they will respond with, we will do it. In fact, they will say, far be it from us that we would ever, ever serve another God other than the God that has delivered us up out of Egypt. And then Joshua's response last week was this, you can't do it. You won't do it. You will not keep the covenant of God. You can't do it. And Joshua knew these people. Joshua had already been with them in Egypt, he had been with them as, uh, as they come to the Red Sea. He had been with them at Meribah. He had been with them at Mount Sinai. Joshua had been with them when they created the golden calf. Joshua had been with them whenever they crossed over the first time into the promised land. It was Joshua and Caleb that came back, the good report of the land, and said, hey, we can kick tail and take names. Let's do it, guys. And everybody else believed the other 10 spies. Joshua has just spent 40 years with this same people or that former generation, this new generation of people. And so even though they're getting ready to cross over into the promised land, even though they're getting ready to take the promised land as what it is, the promised land from God, Joshua knows them and he knows their hearts and he responds to them with, you can't do it even though they say they can. And what the book of Judges is, the book of Judges is the Israelites proving Joshua to be right. That the book of Judges is, it's a dark and it's a heavy book. The book of Judges, if you haven't read it, I would challenge you to read it. And I would say this to preface it, the book of Judges, if I can maybe draw from this illustration, it's almost as if the book of Judges is the Breaking Bad of the Bible. And so a few years ago, this TV series came out and in no way am I, am I endorsing that TV series. It's, it's heavy and it's dark. There weren't just scenes that my wife, like Luann and I, we decided to watch Breaking Bad and so we started watching it. There weren't just scenes that my wife had to turn away and couldn't watch. There wasn't even just episodes. There were seasons when my wife couldn't watch any longer. And what happens in Breaking Bad, it's the story of a high school chemistry teacher named Walter White, who gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so in order to fund his treatments, and also in order to to make sure his family's being taken care of, he turns to manufacturing and selling uh, meth. And so it is the 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 story of a high school chemistry teacher who's esteemed by his colleagues and well known and well thought of. It's the storyline of him, over a few seasons, becoming a a drug lord, and with every season that passes, what you see is you see the character, the person of Walter White becoming more and more dark. You see it in the beginning, cracks and flaws, but you see what is truly inside of this man coming out in this man. And by the end, you don't even recognize him. He's become a, a totally different person. And the book of Judges is, is similar in that every chapter, what you see is you see the people of God, the Israelites, the, the people that God has set his love and his affection on. You see them becoming more and more Dark, more and more wicked, more and more evil as as you go through. But in fact, the final chapter, the final two chapters, I may even say, of the book of Judges, I believe are some of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible. Now, the book of Judges isn't just a book, but the the book of Judges is a it's a, a it's it's telling the story. It's it's capturing a, a period of time, it's chronicling a period of time, a, some almost maybe as much as 400 years are transpiring over the time of Judges. It's written by Samuel. Samuel, as he as he's heard the story, Samuel, as he's looking back, Samuel, or at least that's what we believe. It's never identified who the actual author of the book of Judges is, but we believe it to be the prophet Samuel. And so Samuel's going back and telling the story from the death of Joshua until kind of Samuel's uh, um, role as the prophet. And he's capturing, as it says, the book of Judges, he's capturing the, the storyline of the Judges. In Judges, a, a pattern emerges. Um, it, it's The pattern is this. It is what I would like to call the cycle of sin. And it takes shape in um, six different phases. There's six phases that take place. And what's going to happen is this cycle of sin is going to happen time and time and time again. Now the six phases, I know six a lot, but it's going to be fairly easy to remember because they're going to all begin with the letter R. And so uh, the rest of our time together, for the most part, we're just going to unpack these. But here's the cycle. It begins with the rebellion of God's people. And then it is the retribution of God. It is punishment, God's punishment upon his people, God's discipline upon his people, God's judgment upon his people for their wrongful doing, for their criminal acts, for breaking the law. It's followed by repentance of the people, crying out to the Lord, and then becomes the rescue. And that's where the judges come into play. After the rescue, there's a period of rest. And then the last R is repeat because then it happens all over again over and over and over throughout the book of judges this is the pattern this is the cycle that takes place and so let's unpack each one of those beginning with rebellion in the context of jo- of the book what happened in Joshua is Joshua had taken the people to the brink of the promised land that was in the first chapters and then what happens throughout Joshua is the conquest begins. And throughout Joshua, the major battles have been fought, like the city of Jericho has fallen and other places have been destroyed. The most fortified of the cities have pretty much been destroyed. Whenever you get to Judges, the people, for the most part, are living in the promised land. And now just the individual tribes need to take over and settle their areas. And so there still are inhabitants in the land. Even though the battles have been fought, there's still inhabitants living there in the land. I mean, that's, kind of the problem of that. That's why before in Joshua and even in Deuteronomy, even all the way back in, even in Exodus, you have God saying that when you get to the promised land, there will be the Amorites, the Perezites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Skeeterbites. I had to work it in. I've been waiting weeks to work it in. That's one of my grandpa's lines and I couldn't let this week. I mean, I, I said all of that just to say the Skeeterbites right there, but... But that's what's happening. Those folks are already living in the land. And now the Israelites through military conquest, through war, through fighting, through swords, through blood being shed, they're having to go in and, and depossess the land in order to take what has been theirs, given to them from God, their inheritance, the promised land. Now, let me just make a side note. that I know even that thought right there is troubling for some of us. And I gotta be honest, it's troubling for me that whenever you think about God ordering his people to go and to destroy whole cities and to do all of these things, like it, it's tough for us to think about. But let me just say a couple of things for those of us that may struggle with that. The first thing is the conquest was not based upon race. This doesn't reveal that God is a, a racist God. It's not built upon a race uh, or of a certain ethnicity of people. It's not ethnic cleansing. That's not what God is saying here. It's not racial. It wasn't economic either. In fact, they're told you can't plunder the city. You can't take these people as your slaves. You can't steal from them. The spoils don't belong to you. So it's not racial. It's not economic, but it's this, it's theological. What the children of Israel, what the Israelites and their army and their force are doing is they're carrying out the, the judgment of God upon the people. They're carrying out God's judgment upon the people groups. Like first thing you got to realize is the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites, all of those folks, they're not innocent people. That we want to believe that, that there is such a thing as an innocent human being, and there's not that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And whenever the Bible declares that to be everyone, that's everyone, that's all of humanity, that these are sinful people who have oftentimes done evil things. They, they serve um, false gods that lead them into evil practices. These are idolaters and they do evil, horribly evil things like sacrificing children and in the conquest, the Israelites are to drive out pagan worship and pagan practices. And God is using them as an instrument of justice in order to drive out, to cleanse the land of, of evil. Let me just also say this. This is unique. What's happening here in Joshua and in Judges, it's, it's unique. It's unique in the storyline of the Bible. It's unique in history that in no other time can any other people or any other land claim that what they're doing is similar to what God did in Joshua and in Judges. They're being commanded to do so by God, but God will never and has never commanded his people to ever do that again. That the book of Joshua and the book of Judges are never to be a justification for a holy war today or even in our past, not in the Crusades and certainly not in what you see Americans and our early settlers do into the Native Americans. The tr- atrocities were done there. They are not what is occurring here. They cannot claim Joshua judge, judges to justify what they were doing. When you get to judges, most of, as I've already said, the heavy lifting has been done. The major battles have been fought, they've been won, major cities have been conquered, and what's left are the smaller skirmishes. Now the individual tribes, they're they're going and they're taking possession in these areas. They're to completely drive out the inhabitants, only they don't do that. This falls back into that rebellion part. They don't listen to the Lord. They don't obey God. They don't drive them out. They don't leave them. Instead, what they do is they mingle with them. That what we see in the book of Judges is the canonization of Israel that the, the conquest itself, it's a unique time. It's a unique thing, but there's a, a principle in place here. And here's the principle. The principle is this, that the people of God are called to be holy. They're called to be a holy people. That means that they are, what we mean by holy, that means they are to be separate. They are to be unique. They are to be separated by their love of God, by their worship and their service of God. And they're to be separated by the law of God, that the law of God, in particular, the moral law of God, the the 10 commandments of God, that they're not just arbitrary laws that God has put in place, but the 10 commandments, they reflect the nature. They reflect the character of God. And so from that place of holiness, we are as the people of God to live out in that holiness. We're to live out in, in our love for the Lord. We're to live out in our service, and our worship of God. We're to live out in holiness uh, uh, by, by the way that we live, by the, our keeping of God's law. And the people of God, we're called to influence and to transform the culture around us. And we're not to do this by, by might. See, that's the principle at place, not by might or by force, but by, by love and by being a people. Of character and humility and meekness and service. And we have good news to tell. Our good news that we have to tell is the gospel of Jesus for us as the church. That as we live out from holiness that we are by the power of the gospel to tell the good news of Jesus, like for us as the church, we too are taught, called to to transform the culture by being a unique, separated people. But the very word church means the called out ones, those who have been called out from the world and called to Christ. And then you and I are to be transformed by Christ, and then we're to transform the the culture around us. But not by force, not by power, not by might of our own, but by the by the power and the might that comes from the Lord we're to live that as we as we share the gospel the good news and as by under the power of the spirit he transforms people and people are transformed and as people are transformed families are transformed and neighborhoods are transformed and cities are transformed and on and on and on the ripple effect goes But what happens with the children of Israel is they're not living as holy and distinct and different and loving people. They're not being governed by the law of God as a way to put the character of God on display. They're living in in syncretistic ways. They're living in ways that have shaped them, that what's happened isn't that their holiness is living out, but it's the opposite. The culture has invaded them. They're not influencing the culture. The culture is influencing them. And that's not holiness, that's corruption that's what we see as we see the Israelites in the book of Judges. The Israelites have become a corrupt people. The people of God are now a corrupt people because they've been corrupted by the world around us. And as Pastor Sean talked about, what happened is, is as they intermingled with these people, is they adopted their gods. They didn't adopt their gods in not keeping God. They didn't, they didn't neglect Yahweh, the God that has led them through to the promised land, they didn't neglect that God. Like what they tried to do is they tried to just mingle him in with the other gods that these other people worshiped. And that's what we see here. And what you see happening then is you see that the people of God have become corrupt. That in fact, in the Bible, as as, um, Pastor Derek read the text of scripture for us, that God gives it a name. The formal name is syncretism, but God gives it a name. He calls it, spiritual adultery. He says they've whored after other gods. And that's what God looks at, uh, the, the pollution of our idolatry. That's what he calls it, that he is a God who's called his people together and he's covenanted himself to his people. He's married himself to the people of God. And whenever we go running after other gods, and we'll get there towards the end, but when we run after other gods, But that's what it is, it's spiritual adultery. It's not just sin, although it is, but sin is spiritual adultery. What comes next from these corrupt people, then it's God's retribution, God's judgment. In fact, throughout the uh, book of Judges, seven times it will say this, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Seven different times, which again, there's importance with the number seven, Seven different times, God will declare that these people, my people have done evil in my sight. And so what God brings is he brings his judgment. And what that looks like for the Israelites, it means that they lose in war. It means that they are conquered instead of conquering. They are the ones who are taken, who are plundered. They are the ones who are taken back into captivity, back into slavery. They are oppressed. God thwarts their success and he thwarts their victory and he withholds that from them. And sometimes this happens for long seasons. And so then what the people of Israel do, the children of Israel is they cry out to the Lord. They rightly repent. They understand that their problem isn't just an economic problem, but their problem ultimately is a spiritual problem. It's not an oppression problem. It's a spiritual problem. And it begins with us that we have forgotten God. We've left him and we've become corrupt in our practices. And so they repent and they cry out. We have a God who, who sees the distress of his people and hears the cries of his people. And then God rescues, God rescues his people. And the rescue in the book of Judges comes through the Judges. Now, I don't know what you think of whenever you think of judge, but a couple of things is one is if, if Simon Cowell enters your mind when you think of judge, then don't do that with the book of Judges. If Judge Judy is what you think of whenever you think of judges, don't do that with the book of Judges. Don't think of those things. Don't think about a long black robe and a gavel and maybe a a powdered wig. Like don't think about those things when you think about judges. What you should think about when you think about judges, think about, gosh, maybe Rambo. Think about a military general. Think about a conqueror, someone who's going to lead the people, someone who's going to kick tail and take names. And that's what God sends to the people that these judges aren't judging the people of God, but what these judgment judges are doing is they are carrying out God's judgment against God's enemies, namely those who worship false gods. That's what he's doing. That in fact, the, the word judge, the, if we were to look it up in the Hebrew, it has, it has the same root word as, as Joshua. Joshua. Same root word for judge as, as one who saves, one who delivers, one who rescues. That's what the judges are. They're saviors, they're rescuers, they're deliverers. Now, how many judges are there? I'll pause for a second and see if you can guess. Like if you've been following in the storyline of the Bible, hopefully you guess seven or you guess 40 or you guess 12. Like those are the numbers that reoccur. And there are 12. There are 12 judges throughout the book of Judges that God raises up. There was Caleb's ne- nephew, Othaniel. There was Ehud, who's the left-handed assassin. Now listen, if, you're, if you are following with me and you've got boys in your home, right? Ages 10 to 14, somewhere around there, turn to Judges chapter three and read the story of Ehud with your boys. They will love it. They'll go, that's in the Bible. And you'll go, yes, that's in the Bible. They'll love that story. There's Ehud, there's Deborah. That's right, a female judge. There's Barak. There's Gideon who Gideon looks like such a great warrior for God and accomplishes so much. And then at the, end of Ehu, at the end of Gideon's life, sadly, he makes an ephod of gold and the people begin to worship it. And even Gideon begins to worship. There's Jephthah and there's Samson, the story of Samson and Delilah. Samson was a judge. Such an unlikable hero, and then there will be six more judges to follow. Those are just the early judges that I mentioned by name. There'll be six more. And all twelve judges, their stories, their stories are like Israel's stories. They're stories of both success and failure. That the success and sometimes they do well. And then, like Gideon, in the end of their lives, they turn and worship other gods and they fail like Samson who began so good and so strong and so mighty. And then in the end, he, he fails. And that's what the judges are. They're at best flawed heroes. They're deeply flawed, sinful people, but yet the Lord uses them. And as the judges lead Israelite into military victory, it leads the people to a time of rest, which was that, which was that second to last R. A time of rest and a time of harvest, a time of living in the land, a time of settling the land, a time of building cities. They, let, they were led into those areas, but oftentimes they were short-lived and then you get into the repeat part. It was during the times of rest when they were tested the most. Say that again. It was during the times of rest and a blessing that they were tested the most. Their, Their faithfulness to the Lord was tested the most. When it seemed easy, in times of easiness, they were tested the most. That the Lord did not remove the sinful evil influences around them, neither did he remove it from in them, but he left it out of them in order to test them. And the people, and it wasn't long until they had forgotten the Lord And they fell back into sin and back into rebellion and back into idolatry, back into spiritual adultery, which brought God's judgment, which brought repentance, which brought rescue all the way around. And that is the cycle of sin and that's the cycle of judges that we see it. But now, remember, that's 400 years of time we're talking about over time and time and time again, at least 12 times. Now, a couple of application points for us. The first one is this. The cycle of sin is the cycle of our lives, is it not? Rebellion and running from the Lord is all of our stories. That in the same way I said about the Hittites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, that there were no innocent people, the same thing is true. There are no innocent people. There are no rebels. That we all are born rebels. We all are born under the penalty of sin. and our lives, they testify to this. The first thing we need to do as we think about this cycle of sin, as we think about the pattern of sin, is we start here with recognizing your rebellion. Recognize your rebellion and call out to the Lord. And the good news throughout the cycle of sin isn't just that we've rebelled. That's not good news. That's the bad news, but that's where it begins. And neither is it retribution. Here's the good news. The good news is first and foremost this, that God gives opportunity for repentance before there is final retribution. And if you're watching this live stream this morning and there's, there's breath in your lungs, then God has not brought the final retribution upon you yet. The final judgment, the final verdict has not been made. And the good news is this, that you can repent and you can turn. The good news is this, that God has sent a rescuer in the person of Jesus who leads us, who leads the repentance into places of rest. That is the good news. The good news is this, that Jesus as the rescuer, that Jesus comes, and Jesus leads us to rest, to rest from our toil of sin, to rest from trying to make ourselves right through empty works as well that we get to as we believe and as we repent, as we believe the gospel, the repentance is turning away from our rebellion, turning away from our idolatry. It's, it's doing that and turning to the rescuer who is Jesus. All of his works that he's done on the cross that as we believe in that rightly repenting, turning away from those things, turning to Christ, that Christ saves us and Christ enters. He, he leads us to places of rest where we get to rest in Christ's finished work, not our own. We get to rest from our toil, from trying to work off our salvation through religion or through moral living or through this or that or beating ourselves up or through any of those things. We get to rest in what Christ has accomplished. That's the good news. The cycle of sin is the cycle of our lives because it's in the cycle of sin that we find freedom from our sin, freedom from the burden of the penalty of sin when we find Christ. But listen, I don't know about you as you look at the cycle of sin and you think about the rebellion and the retribution, repentance, rescue, rescue, and repeat. Not only does that sound like my life as I look back on, not only does it look like the event that occurred when I was 15 years old, when I repented to Christ, but that cycle, it looks like last Tuesday for me. It's not just an isolated cycle that speaks about the the grand narrative of my life, but even more than that, it speaks about my, my every day that I think I hit every one of those cycles, even last week that rebellion and, rebellion and idolatry, that it's, that it's in me, that not only is this that we see here, not only is it the, the pathway of salvation, but it's also the pathway of, of being saved, of living as the saved, as living as the redeemed, as living as the holy ones, living as the church. It's the same pathway. It's the pathway of sanctification as well. It's when I recognize my own rebellion and my disobedience and my idolatry. And oftentimes we wanna leave idolatry as a thing in the Old Testament. We wanna leave it in something in, 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 uh, in the book of Judges. And we would say, well, that's what they did. And listen, that is not true. That worship, worship is intrinsic into the heart of man. That we are been made by God with the capacity to worship. But the difference between Christians and non-Christians isn't that Christians worship and non-Christians don't worship. The difference between believers and unbelievers isn't that believers worship and unbelievers don't worship. No, the difference in those two is that believers, Christians, we worship Jesus. And unbelievers, Non-Christians, they worship too. They just worship another object. That what idolatry is, is whenever we fail to worship Jesus and we worship something else. And I know there are idolatry that's easy to spot. It's easy to spot as we read the Old Testament and we think about them serving Baal and those serving the Asherah pole, offering child sacrifices. But here's the truth in America we sacrifice children almost every day to the God of sex. It's called abortion. We're still worshiping Moloch as the children of Israel did. People sacrifice their children all the time for pleasure and desires, to follow after fleeting things of the flesh. They sacrifice their children all the time for work in order to get and to gain, to have bigger homes and fancier cars or nicer things in order to keep up with the mirage that is the American dream that's sold as a faulty bill of goods that leads you into more and more captivity. It's idolatry is what it oftentimes is. It's because you're worshiping something else. In fact, Tim Keller said this, what is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God is. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It's anything that that you seek to to give you, what only God can give you. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value and then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship, that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. And the truth about ourselves, the truth about us, even as Christians, is we are constantly pulling our hearts, pulling our affections, pulling where we find meaning and where we find significant off of other things and placing it on Christ. That's the work of sanctification in our lives. It is when God by the power of the spirit reveals those things to us. And then we are led into repentance where we repent of those other things and place all of our trust. We bank all of our, all of our, our future, all of our love, all of our affections on Christ and on Christ alone. John Calvin said, and we quote it here often that our hearts are idol making factories and no truer thing may have been said about the human heart than that, that our hearts, you need to know that about you. You need to recognize that about you. That like in Judges, for many of us in our Christian walk, in our sanctification, most of the larger battles have already been fought and they've already been won against larger sins in our lives. That many of the fortified cities have already been conquered, smaller victories, they've been won. But as Solomon writes in the Song of Solomon, oftentimes it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. It's the little things in our lives. It's the seemingly small sins, the small heart attitudes left unchecked, the doubts not tended to by the word of God, questions not brought before the Lord, not studied out, not thought about. It's the little thoughts that aren't taken captive, taken captive and brought into the obedience of Christ. It's those things that often lead us toward corruption and idolatry and unbelief and, Lord protect us from apostasy even. It may not be true of us. As we think about the cycle of sin, it is the cycle of our lives that the work of the spirit through the means of grace, through God's word and through prayer, the preaching of the word, the meditation of the word, the remembering of Christ that we do in the Lord's supper, the remembering of what it means when we gave our lives to Christ and we were baptized through the spiritual disciplines That the way that that works, it's in order to to shorten the cycle of sin, especially in the area of rebellion. And so that whenever you read God's word, you don't harden your heart at the things that God's word says. You don't try to justify your actions or justify your heart or justify your thoughts by saying, well, I know what other people do, or I know people think worse, or even saying like, well, this seems too hard, but you bring your heart before that. And you say, Lord, if there's anything in me that is offensive to you, Lord, reveal it to me that I may repent of it. You meet God's grace of showing us our idolatry and our rebellion with true and genuine repentance a turning from those things. The spirit is at work in order to shorten our rebellion in order to also lengthen our rest. It's to shorten our rebellion. In fact, I would say this, that one of the ways that you know, you're getting the gospel is how quickly you can move through those cycles like I said, I felt like this was me last Tuesday. That's right on a taco Tuesday that I would hit every one of those. But one of the ways that I know that I'm getting the gospel and understanding the gospel is how quickly I can move from recognizing my idolatry, recognizing my obe- my disobedience and my rebellion and moving from there to repentance back over to looking to Christ as my rescuer and back into the place of of rest, where I'm resting in Christ and Christ's finished work for me, not my performance, but Christ's perfect performance, not my morality, but Christ's perfect righteousness, not any work that I may do, but Christ's complete finished work that is done on the cross and in, in, in an empty grave upon his declaration of my, of my, over that, over my life. It doesn't really matter how I feel about that. Like there's times where repentance and I will think about the rescue. I may not move my heart into rest and I may not have any more peace about it. But yet I know that my forgiveness is all on Christ and not on me. It takes me a few days sometimes to rehearse that over and over, rehearsing the gospel to myself, for I find my heart and my my life in a place where I can rest. And I feel assurance of my forgiveness and feel assurance of my communion with God. But again, it's not based on me and my performance. It's based upon Christ. God rescues the repentant. That's a truism that we can see throughout the book of Judges not by our might, not by our good works, not by our accomplishment, but it's God who provides and raises up a rescuer. And he's done that in the person and the work of Jesus. And he is perfect in that. All other judges have failed, but Christ as the perfect judge never fails. And lastly, let me just say this as a second. Our second um, application that we can draw from the book of Judges is this. Parents, never underestimate your role to teach your children about Jesus. That Judges chapter two is a summary for the rest of the book of Judges is setting it up as that trajectory, but it begins with this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. It's speaking about the generation of Joshua, and speaking about the, the, that next, actually, not even the generation of Joshua, that next generation, the generation that has, has um, endured in the time of the wilderness, has gone through that generation, the generation that was gonna be led into the conquest, they're gathered to their fathers. That means is they died, they died. And there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel doesn't mean there when it says it did not know the Lord, it does not mean they were ignorant of God. They weren't ignorant of Yahweh, but it didn't, it didn't strike a chord in their hearts. What, what God had done didn't, didn't ring true in their heart of hearts, this next generation. They knew about him, but it just didn't move them to worship of him. And that happened because of two reasons. I believe, idolatry and intermarriage. It happened because of idolatry. They saw their parents who didn't take Jesus very seriously. They saw their parents who were given over to syncretism and spiritual adultery and idolatry. They didn't see their parents probably as those who not just taught them the Bible, but their parents as people who who repented, who was put at staking everything on Christ. Listen, parents, Never underestimate your influence you have on your children to teach them and to instruct them into the things of Jesus. That is my story. That as I stand here before you as a 45-year-old man, I'm here because of the sovereignty and the goodness of God, yes. And I'm also here because at age 14, my family, in particular my dad, got right and got serious about his relationship with the Lord. He didn't catechize us. He didn't tuck us in at night, kiss us on the forehead. He didn't pray over us every night. But what he did was he, like Joshua, like we saw in Joshua, he said, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. And he set the pace in our family as the one who led us to church and took us to church. It wasn't a question. We didn't get up. We didn't get together on Saturday night and flip a coin whether we were gonna go to church the next morning. Let me also insert this. At that time in our lives when I was 14, from 14 to 17, we drove an hour and 15 minutes to get to our church family. And on Sunday mornings, we got up and we went to church. We went to Sunday school and we went to church. And Sunday evenings, we went to church. And Wednesday nights, we went to church. That's right, on Wednesday nights, we drove three hours to go to church. Why? Because my dad was setting up the precedence. In our lives, for us, the church is important. And I listened, I saw that. Never underestimate your power as parents to teach your children, to influence your children. When they see it taking root in your heart, when they see a mom and a dad who, who know the Lord, who love the Lord, who, who live repentant lives, not perfect lives, but repentant lives. Believe me, if I had to repent to my kids a hundred times, Sorry for losing my temper. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I did that. I know that that doesn't reflect Christ to you very well. Through idolatry and also through intermarriage, they didn't influence their children to marry well. And parents, this is a place where I think you can really influence your children. Hope you don't write me off as a religious zealot here, but for my children, even when they were Young, we've started with our five-year-old. We say, don't date anyone who isn't a believer. Whenever my older children talk about a new boyfriend or new girlfriend, question number one is, are they Christians? Are they Christians? Do they know Jesus? Do they believe in Jesus? Are they living repentant lives? Are they following after him? Are they being discipled? What church are they a part of? Do they go? Do they attend? Those are the most important things to us because ultimately our trust is in the power of Christ. The, diet, the downfall of Israel in this period comes on the backs of primary, primarily two actions, idolatry and intermarriage. Judges chapter 21, 25 closes out with this text where there's so much tension. The text is this. In those days, there, were, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how Judges ends. Judges ends with us feeling that tension and that tension in the text is the longing for a king. And in the absence of a king, people are free to do whatever the heck they want to do. That king that they're waiting for, that king that they're longing for. He'll come. He'll come a lot of years later, but he'll come. He'll come as the person of Jesus. Jesus is that king. The judges, they came to save the people from the consequences of their sin, but they could not change the cause of their sin. But Jesus is that savior and Jesus is that king. Jesus is the judge who takes upon himself the consequences of our sin and he offers us new hearts in order to seek after his righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we find our rest in you, Jesus. And Jesus, I pray for people that may be watching us even this morning who have yet to find, who've yet to repent, who's yet to find their rest in Christ. They're trying to work off their salvation through other means. They're they're, They're trying to stifle the consequences of sin. They're trying to stifle sinful actions, but the cause is still in them. Sin is easy because they've not been made new. They've not been changed. They've not been born again. They've not been born from above that comes through the power of your spirit. So Jesus, as we look to you as that perfect rescuer, may you save us, save us from our sin. Save those who have yet to place faith in you and save those of us who have placed faith in you. Continue to save us from our sin. Save us from the, you've saved us from the penalty of our sin. Deliver us, Lord, from the power of sin. And Jesus, we too, like the people in Judges, we long for the perfection of your kingdom, that where we won't just believe it by faith, but we'll see it with sight. We long for that. It's in your precious name we pray, amen.